God today, uh, be God in this place. And that is to say, be in control and be in charge of, of what we say and hear and uh, open, our, up, open us. We, we join with you to just say, have your way with us today. Change us, move us, and shape us. I pray, Lord, that there would be some challenging conviction and encouragement through this message for our body, God. That's what our prayer is. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Janice has gone to church for years. She's a staple on the women's ministry planning team, but people know her as a complainer, a victim, someone who always has reason to gripe or grumble about something in her life. Her friends find that she is self-centered and self-absorbed. She's a terrible listener, and conversations with Janice always tend toward gossip, couched in spirituality, of course. Eric is a a fun guy, well-liked, seems to be successful at work, and is currently being considered for the elder board. But the truth is this, Eric doesn't have any real friends. He and his wife have been struggling for the past two years since the birth of their last child, but Eric's convinced himself that there's no one to talk to. He goes to a men's Bible study where they discuss the scriptures and share every week, but there are some things Eric considers private, personal. In fact, Eric can't remember the last time he confessed a serious sin to another person. Kim is a community group leader, a mentor for some of the youth at church. He's involved in the homeless ministry downtown and even sings on the worship team about once a month. People call her confident, well-liked, and her bubbly personality lets everyone see that she really loves God. But what people don't see is the insecurity and longing for approval that truly drives Kim and constantly consumes her thoughts. Critique, conflict, criticism of any kind will send her into a tailspin, so she works overtime to ensure that everyone will like her. And finally, there's Scott. Scott's steady, even. His emotions are always contained. Church people see his unexpressive personality as someone with self-control, wisdom, maturity. He's calculated, careful, a good listener, but also always has a slew of Bible verses to offer at any moment, which only adds to his reputation as a go-to spiritual counselor. What people don't know is that at home, Scott has a temper. His kids, who are very well behaved, another source of pride for Scott, have learned to live with low-level anxiety and a fear of dad's explosive disapproval. Scott knows that he lives on the edge at times, but he even has Bible verses to help him justify and feel better about these moments as well. Friends, these are not real people, but you've met them. Or maybe you can see a glimpse of yourself in them. Or maybe this morning, if you're honest, you'd say something like this, I've been walking with Jesus, going to church, serving in ministry, going to Bible study, serving as a pastor for quite a few years now, and yet there is still a nagging insecurity, a fear of the future, a defensiveness in me that I can't seem to shake, pride that wells up, greed, lust, a recurring feeling that God is not pleased with me, a temptation to compare and compete with people, even my friends. A lack of truly feeling close to God. A pattern of escapist behaviors. The list goes on. Why? 
The question I want to pose for us this morning is this. Why does Christianity, following Jesus, involvement in the church, not automatically translate into people who are truly experiencing deep lives of peace and hope and joy and fulfillment the way that Jesus promised? Why, as one writer I read this week states, do Christians so often make lousy humans? And let me just say right off the top here, I, I'm not going to come this morning, I'm not here to bash Christians, I'm not here to tear down the church, we have enough of that going on in our world today, but here's what I do want to do. I want this morning to call us and ask us and invite us and challenge us to engage life with Jesus in a way that truly transforms us, transforms us in the most deep, significant ways possible, the ways that we all actually long for. Friends, next week we are launching into a new series. This week is not actually the first week of the series. It's the intro. So for those of you who are panicked right now that I'm a week early, this is not officially the series. Next week we're going to be in a series called Spiritual EQ. This morning is just sort of the intro to that. And the idea for this series comes out of a book that was written by a pastor named Peter Scazzaro. And it's called The Emotionally Healthy Church. It's a book that our staff has been reading and working through together over the past number of months. And at the very beginning of this book, the very opening story Peter tells is the moment when his wife came to him and stood before him and said, I'm leaving your church. I quit your church. I'm not leaving you. I don't want to divorce you. I don't like you very much. But I'm leaving your church. You're not a good pastor. You're emotionally unhealthy. You're not the person you preach about or say that you are or show other people that you are. I can no longer in good conscience follow your leadership and attend the church that you pastor. I quit. That's pretty brutal. My wife has never said that to me and I pray she never will um, because that would just crush me. Uh, But this sends Peter on his quest to figure out what's going on and why and to get healthy. And what he discovers is this. The thing that he has missed all these years in church, all these years preaching, all these years in Bible study and and reading the scriptures, he's missed paying more close attention to his inner life and emotions. He's forgotten to take long, hard looks inside. In fact, right At the beginning of the book, one of the things he says is this. Christian spirituality without an integration of emotional health can be deadly to yourself, to your relationship with God and the people around you. At another point, he says this. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And that's why we're calling this series Spiritual EQ. Because we all know what IQ is, right? It's, it's that thing that measures how smart we are, how much brain capacity we have, how much we know. But EQ, EQ is shorthand for emotional intelligence. And, and I looked up EQ, emotional intelligence, on Wikipedia this, this week, um, the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And here is what Wikipedia says, how it defines emotional intelligence, EQ. The ability... To recognize one's own and other people's emotions, to discriminate between different feelings and label them appropriately, and, and, listen to this part, to use emotional information to guide thinking and behavior. 
EQ is the ability to use emotional information to guide thinking and behavior. And so what we're saying in this series is this. You can know a lot about God and the Bible. You can have a real high spiritual IQ. But if you are not connecting the dots between your spiritual life and the deep emotional realities of your soul, you will never grow. You will never change. You will never be transformed. You will never be discipled. You will never become spiritually mature. Until you start dealing with the stuff in here. And friends, when we stop to think about it, this makes perfect sense. It's amazing how so many of us have missed this. Because it's all throughout the Bible and all over the teaching and ministry of Jesus. This is one of my favorite pair of verses in the scriptures. Galatians chapter 5. This is Paul talking to the young church in Galatia and he's instructing them on what it means to truly live the Christian life and experience God in a deep way. And he says, here's how you can know and see and tell that you are really getting it right, that you have invited God into your life in a significant way. He says this, the fruit of the Spirit... The fruit of the Spirit, the, the, the evidence that the Spirit of God is truly leading your life, the evidence that, that you are growing and maturing in Christ is this. Love, joy, peace, patience. Listen to the emotions just flow. <laughs> Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you know who's being described here? Can you picture this person? Do you see the the picture that Paul is painting? This is not a person that knows a lot. This is not a person that does a lot. This is a person who is extremely in touch with their emotional feelings and who has let God shape those feelings and who is now living out of that spiritually transformed inner peace and place. That's discipleship. That's maturity. When we get changed so much internally that externally it just starts to flow out of us. But here's what most of us do. This is how most of us approach uh, Jesus and our spiritual life. As we read this list, this fruit of the Spirit, it's actually just one fruit with all these different elements. It's not multiple fruits, it's one, but, but... it's a super fruit. It's like a super food, like quinoa or something. Anyway, um, we read this list of what it means to be spiritually mature, and we think, man, if I can just work hard on the exterior part of my life, on the part of my life that everybody sees, if I can force my behaviors to look this way, to exhibit love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, then I'll certainly be spiritually mature then people will think that I'm spiritually mature. They will see that I'm spiritually mature. I'll be able to convince myself that I'm spiritually mature. And God will certainly have to agree that I'm now spiritually mature if I can make my life look this way. And so we work really hard, don't we? To be loving and joyful and peaceful and patient. Even when we don't feel like it. But friends, here's the fundamental problem. Here is the absolute core of the issue. It is not, this is not... How Jesus says transformation happens. And since Jesus is as like the founder of our faith and the one we're all following, Christ followers, he has some authority in this issue. And he says, this does not work. He says, if you choose this path, if you, if you take this approach, you will be woefully disappointed. At some point, this method will betray you. And furthermore, people will see through all of your exterior efforts and at some point, it's just a matter of time, they are going to discover who you really are. The facade 
All the work, it will come crumbling down because what you are on the inside will, fact of life, law of nature, eventually show up on the outside. There's no way to fake it. Not long term. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man or woman brings good things out of the good stored up in their heart. An evil man or woman brings evil things out of the evil stored up in their heart. In other words, what's on the inside is going to show up on the outside. Nate, Nate said something this weekend to the man that I really liked. He defined this idea of the heart in the Bible. And we've talked about this before, but I like the words that he used. Um, he says, the, the heart in the Bible is a way of talking about the whole self, the whole of a person's internal life, everything that you are deep down. Your heart is not in the Bible just like this fleshy organ that beats or just your feelings. It's all the internal stuff of you. It's the real you. The heart, Nate said, is like the central nervous system of the soul. I love that. And just like a tree that is internally a fig tree will outwardly produce figs, the human life will ultimately kick out and produce what is happening inside. Friends, this is why Jesus has no interest at all in simply changing your exterior behaviors. Not interested in that. Not concerned with that. He wants more. He wants the insides of you. And this is where we get to feelings and emotions and emotional health. Things that traditionally, historically in the church have been sort of poo-pooed, even pushed aside, discredited. You cannot trust your feelings. They're so fickle. Ignore them. Fight them. Trust the Word of God. Right? Facts are our friends. Feelings will lie to you. That's kind of the message of the church so often. But here's why. That approach is just bogus. If your life was a car, and I'm changing analogies on you right now, we were talking about trees, and now we're talking about cars, so shift with me here. If your life was a car, then your emotions, your feelings, would be the dashboard. Your emotions are the speedometer and the temperature gauge and the RPMs of what is happening inside your soul, in your heart. They tell you what's going on in here. You want to know what's inside of me that's going to eventually come out? Take a look. Listen real hard to your feelings. This is why, friends, we cannot, must not, should not, shall not mishandle our emotions. And the world will give you lots of ways to do this. The world will actually like make it so easy for you to miss this point and mishandle your emotions and feelings and completely avoid the deep, life-changing, transforming power that Jesus wants to offer you. The world is going to make it simple for you. And they're going to tell you, here are the ways that you should handle your emotions. I'm going to give you four. Four ways that the world will say, handle feelings, emotions this way. First of all, the world will say, just be driven by your emotions. Pastor Matt actually talked about this last week in a beautiful way. How so often in our world today, our feelings just are what defines our life. Uninhibited and, and unblocked. I feel, therefore I am. And whatever I feel, it must be legit because the only thing I can trust in this world is 
Me, my feelings, what I'm feeling in this sort of relativistic age, not even facts, not even history books can really be trusted in any way. So I just trust my feelings and I charge forward in them. That's the first way to deal with our feelings. We're just driven by our emotions. Second way the world teaches us to deal with our emotions is to detach from them. Just to sort of shove them aside. Uh, I was listening to John uh, Mark Comer this past week, and John Mark's a pastor here in town, and um, by way of being emotionally healthy, I felt like I should give him credit for some of this section of my sermon, because that's hard, because John Mark is a pastor at a really big, popular church, and he's really cool hair. Um, it's not thinning in any way. And uh, and then you meet him, and you think, man, I'll probably just be this arrogant, big-time, big-shot pastor. And then he's really nice and gracious and humble, and you're like, Darn it! No, he really is. And he had some great things to say, and I stole a little bit from him with his permission. I listened to him this week, and he talks about how this idea that, that we should just detach from our emotions is actually the ever-increasing influence of Eastern spirituality in our world. Especially here on the West Coast. Eastern spirituality is so popular in Portland. It's all around you, and it's even seeped into your way of thinking, even though you... Don't realize that, in fact, all four of these things, you'll find yourself. They're not just in the world. They're in the church, and they're in you. All four of these ways of dealing with feelings. Buddhism, for example, Hinduism, too, teaches that all suffering, did you know this, is the byproduct of desire and attachment. Buddha, therefore, says that the way we deal with desire is we detach from it. Buddha says, when we no longer desire anything, then evil and sin and suffering will be gone from our lives and from the world. When all emotion and desire has been purged from your body, you will achieve then the highest state for the Buddhist, which is called nirvana. Bliss. Complete freedom. Right? I looked again on Wikipedia for the definition of nirvana. It's a, a place or state characterized by freedom from oblivion, freedom from or oblivion to. Imagine how that yeah, to be oblivious to pain, worry, and the external world. It defines nirvana this way: the extinction of all desires and in individual existence, just to completely annihilate all your desires. No more suffering, no more pain, no more disappointment. All those negative feelings will be gone. If only you could get rid of desire. Now, what's interesting about this is that while Jesus and the Buddha agree on a lot of things, they actually could have a really great conversation, um, they agree that desire is a big problem for the human race, and it's actually the source of sin and suffering. Jesus, however, takes the complete opposite view from Buddhism, from the Buddha. They deal with this problem in 180 degrees different sorts of ways. Jesus says, the problem isn't that you desire too much and that you need to rid yourself of desire or feelings or emotions. No, Jesus says, the problem is that we as humans desire too little. And while the highest state for the Buddhist is this place where all desire has ceased, the highest state for the Christian is, you know the name? Heaven! This, this place, this state where we no longer will settle for the cheap imitation, sin-filled, broken desires of humanity in this fallen world. But now, 
will fully long for and embrace all that God created us to embrace. You see, Jesus says, we don't desire enough. That's our problem. Completely different approach. And friends, here's the point. Back to the point. There are streams of thought in this world that will tell you, detach from your emotions. Ignore your feelings. You can't trust them. They will only lead to pain. Some of you... This sounds really great because you're that kind of person anyway and you're a thinker and feelings are weird and hard and they didn't get expressed in your home and you'd prefer just to set them aside and not deal with them and go through life like this and not have to talk to your wife and she always wants to tell me how I feel and I wish I could not do that and it's not funny, is it? Okay, sorry. Um, some of you, like your personality lends towards that and so you're just ready to become a Christian Buddhist just like that. You didn't even know it. That's the second way that the world tells us that we can and should deal with our feelings and emotions. The third way is for us to dodge them. I'm going for all D words today. If you didn't catch that. Um, this approach actually reflects a secular naturalist worldview. It says this. This life is all there is. And because of that, there really is no ultimate meaning or purpose to sin and pain and suffering. And so, the answer to it is just simply to avoid it, to dodge it, to get as far away from any of the negative feelings that you might encounter. In other words, when you feel pain, when you feel depressed, when you feel anxiety, when you are faced with insecurity or fear or any other feeling that you do not like, Do whatever you need to do to escape. To just get rid of that feeling and get into a place where you feel good. The classic classic examples of this are, of course, drugs and alcohol. But friends, there's a lot of other options out there. Shopping. Food. Work. Television. Church. Romance and relationships. Maybe it's for you. It's social media or video games or recreation or movies or binge watching your new favorite show on Netflix. And every day you look forward to later that night when all your problems can simply fade away as you dive into that next episode of House of Cards with Kevin Spacey. Nine o'clock, just get here. The kids will be in bed and all will be better. You know who you are. Friends, the 21st century modern world we live in will give you innumerable ways to dodge your emotions. And the final way that the world teaches us to deal with our feelings is probably the one that hits closest to home for American Christians. And that's deceive them. Just deceive your feelings. Here's how this often plays out in the Christian world. You feel down or insecure or fearful or sad or angry. Um, and because these emotions are not allowed in the Bible, you just re- replace them. Because, because certainly as a Christian, I'm not supposed to feel this way. The Bible says I shouldn't. And so I just won't. I'll just replace them with a more biblically acceptable emotion. I'll say a quick prayer. I'll quote an uplifting Bible verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice, but you're depressed. Yeah, but rejoice always. I'm happy. Or you read your devotional or you put on a worship song so that you can get over it and move past it and push that negative emotion out of your mind. Friends, you've seen people like this. Maybe you're one of these folks. These people that have to have Christian music playing all the time. 
in their house, in their office, in their car. It's like if Christian music isn't playing in the background of their life, they'll just start to cry. I don't know. We become dependent on this, this sort of sense that we can cover our pain and hurt and sadness with this cheerful spirituality. We call it Jesus. You know, one of the places that we see this happening in the Bible for the first time is actually with a guy by the name of Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. He was anointed by God to lead his people, and then he walked away from God, and he stopped relying on the Lord. And in that process, he developed this growing insecurity and fear and anxiousness, and he started to feel paranoid and depressed. And so... Saul got some spiritual advice that he should have this young man, this very talented musician named David, come and play the harp or the lyre for him. And he was told this would make him feel better. In essence, the advice that Saul got was this. Just throw on your favorite worship disc and let the inspirational music take your troubles away. Hillsong United 2015, let's do it, you know. Um... We do this sometimes. Do you ever do this? I have done this. I have been King Saul. Uh, And here's the thing. When David plays the harp, when he plays for King Saul, what happens? He feels better. He does for a little while until he tries to kill David with a spear. (laughs) Because long term it doesn't work. The first public attempt at the uh, assassination of a worship pastor in the history of the world... Um, Set a bad precedent for the future. Anyway, friends, here's the tragic part of the story. Don't miss what a tragic figure Saul is because here's the truth about him. He was a man who had some real serious heart issues. This is a guy who had some, some deeply dysfunctional emotional pain going on and instead of dealing with his stuff, instead of inviting God into the deepest parts of his life so that he could be healed and changed and redeemed and restored and step into becoming the person and having the life that God so longed for him to have, instead, he just put on a worship tune and tried to find his happy place. And he died depressed and lonely and miserable. And far from God. Peter Scazzaro calls this using God to run from God. And it's when we use spiritual disciplines to cover up our feelings and thus avoid dealing with the very things that God wants to work out in our lives. How how deceptive is that? That you could actually use the Bible to hide from God or worship music or even prayer to hide from the one you're praying to. Happens all the time. Friends, Jesus takes none of these approaches. He's not driven by his emotions. He's not detached from them. He doesn't dodge his feelings. He doesn't try to deceive himself into feeling better than he actually does. Not what he does. And our problem is that we just don't see Jesus as a, as a feeling person. We don't see him as this deeply like emotional man. But he was... This is a a quote from a guy by the name of G. Walter Hansen. He wrote an article called The Emotions of Jesus. Here's what he says. The gospel writers paint their portraits of Jesus using a kaleidoscope of brilliant emotional colors. Jesus felt compassion. He was angry, indignant, and consumed with zeal. He was troubled, 
greatly distressed, very sorrowful, depressed, deeply moved and grieved. He sighed, he wept and sobbed, he groaned, he was in agony, he was surprised and amazed, he rejoiced very gladly and was full of joy. He greatly desired and he loved. Jesus was very tuned in to his spiritual VQ. Jesus is someone who teaches us how to use emotional information to guide our thinking and behavior. And so this morning, I want to close by talking to you about one moment. One of the many moments where we see this in Jesus. And it's a significant moment, and it's, it's extremely profound. It happens in Mark chapter 14. The scene is the Garden of Gethsemane. We are days before Jesus will go to the cross, before he will bear the sin of the world, where he will suffer um, unconscionable torture and then death for you and me. And in the garden, as he prepares for this moment, as he looks ahead, knowing what's ahead, because he's fully God and he sees the future. It's not just maybe this will happen. He knows this will happen. The pain and distress and trouble and grief And maybe even panic are just all over him. Listen to what he says. Listen to these words. Listen to how emotionally in touch our Lord is with himself. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Friends, Do you see what Jesus does with his feelings here? Do you see how it's nothing like what the world would tell us to do with ours? I want to offer you three things that Jesus does with his his feelings, and I'll do it quickly. First of all, Jesus acknowledges his feelings. He just states the fact. He doesn't pretend, he doesn't posture, he doesn't hide, he doesn't shift. He just says, here's how I feel. He knows how he feels. He owns how he feels. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He doesn't say, fellas, this doesn't feel right to me. This whole cross thing, I'm starting to feel a little different about it than I did a few years back. Let's get out of here. Let's hightail it back to Galilee. No, he doesn't try to, he's not driven by his emotions. He doesn't just act based on how he's feeling. He doesn't say, gentlemen, my feelings about the cross are irrelevant and will only distract me from my mission to save the world from sin. Right? He's not Spock. (laughs) It is illogical to think that my feelings would matter at all in this moment, you know? That's how we think of him though, right? You know, One of the gospel writers says that he's so overwhelmed with his emotions that he starts to sweat drops of blood. Can you imagine the amount of tension it would take to sweat drops of blood, the amount of fear and panic? He must be battling on the inside of his heart. He doesn't say, 
guys, you know, the cross, this whole cross thing, it's a few days away still. Let's go catch a show, have a glass of wine. I just need to forget about this whole suffering deal for a little while. Anybody got Netflix? No, he doesn't, he doesn't dodge his emotions. He, he doesn't say, this is my favorite one because you can kind of picture this. He doesn't say, fellas, the cross is coming. But oh, happy day, happy day it will be when I wash your sins away. Oh, happy day. He doesn't slap a Bible verse on it. He doesn't say, you know, gentlemen, don't worry. I can do all things through me who gives me strength. Right? Just smile. He doesn't deceive himself. He's not deceptive. He doesn't fake it. He just owns it. This is how I feel. Awful, horrible, overwhelming feelings. Just puts them out there. Then he declares his, his desires. Because this is what I want. This is how I feel. This is what I want. This is just really what I want. Abba, Father. The best translation in English for that is just Daddy. And I don't think it even quite captures the intimate language, the desperate tone of his voice. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. The cup being the pain and suffering Jesus will endure on the cross. The sin of the world that he will bear so that you and I can be free from condemnation and death. Can that be taken from me? Is there any other way? I don't want to do this. You know, one thing I thought about this week. Was it God's will for Jesus to go to the cross? To die for our sins? Was it? You can answer confidently. It's not a trick question. Yes, it was. It was. That's why he sent him. He sent his son for this very moment. This is the big moment. Without this moment, we're not all here right now. And Jesus says here, God, your will, what you want... I don't want it. You ever think about that? Jesus tells God he doesn't want to do what God wants him to do. Now, I, I'm probably right on the brink of heresy here, so I'll, I'll keep going. <laughs> uh, I think what Jesus says here is, it's okay to be honest with God and to tell him, how you feel and what you want to do, even when it's not what he wants you to do. Actually, it's in that place that he can change you and transform you. You see, Jesus was the most fully human person ever. He was certainly 100% God, but he's 100% human. And he shows us what it means to be human. To be human is to say, God, I don't want what you want. And then finally, he surrenders his will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And this isn't Jesus saying, God, here's what I feel and here's what I want, but I'm going to follow the rules. It's not what he's saying. I'm just going to like muscle down and suck it up. Am I allowed to say that in church? I did. And just go for it because I have to. It's not that. What he's actually saying, Lord, is not my will, but your will. Your spirit alive and, and involved with me. Change me. Transform me. Shape my will into your will. That I will begin to feel what you need me to feel and want what you begin me to want. And I have to be honest, I don't right now, but I'm going to yield all of that to you. I'm giving you time and space 
and a vulnerable place so that you can work on it. How often have you done that with God? Do you ever stand before God and say, Lord, here's how I feel. I feel insecure. I feel jealous. I feel lustful, Lord. And out of those things, here's what I want to do. I want to gossip. I want to slander. I want to quit. I want to be passive aggressive. I want to download stuff on my computer. I want to fill in the blank. Here's how I feel, Lord, and here's what I want to do. And God says, ah, now we're talking. And he said, Lord, nah, but not my will, your will. Change that in me. Transform that in me. This is actually exactly what David does too. Jesus and David on the same page. Just offering God that deep emotional part so that God can do what only God can do. Because here's the truth, friends. The Spirit of God is alive in you. It's not just an exterior rule. You're asking the Spirit to do what the Spirit wants to do. Pastor Matt talked about this, I think, over a year ago. How There's our strongest desires, and then there's our deepest desires. There's these things that we want more than ever in a moment to do, and yet there's these deeper things. My strongest desire is to lash out at my wife, or yell at my kids, or be a jerk on the freeway. But my deepest desire is to be the loving father that my kids need and the kind and compassionate understanding husband and the kind of driver that doesn't bring shame to the name of Jesus like I most often am. There's this, this yearning to go from strongest to deepest. Lord, well up in me that which is in there already by the power of your spirit. Amen. Friends, this morning we're going to close this service. And I've asked Pastor Jerry to sing this song with the worship team called No Longer Slaves. And there's a line in this song. It goes like this. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. And I think so often, too often, we've sung this song and other songs like it. And what we've really meant or what we thought we were saying was, I shouldn't fear. And if I do fear, I should just repress it or dodge it or bury it or deceive myself. Not the message of this song. What this song is saying, I'm no longer a slave to fear because there's something in me deeper and stronger than fear. And God, I'm just going to be real honest. I am afraid. And in my fear, I want to do these things. But I'm yielding my will to you. Change me. Transform me. Not just my outsides, but my insides. And maybe for you, maybe for you this morning, it's not fear. Maybe for you today, it is insecurity. It is jealousy. It is pain. It is grief. It is sorrow. It's lust. It's envy. Maybe there's some real honest emotions that you're dealing with today. And even though we're going to sing fear together, I just encourage you in your mind to just make it a confession to God. Lord, I am no longer a slave to whatever it is. And that's just your way of saying, Lord, it is how I feel. It is driving my desires, but I am giving it to you. I'm handing it to you today, and I'm asking you to do what only you can do, and that's change me from within. Let's sing this this morning. Let's make it our prayer, and then in a bit, Pastor Jerry will usher us to the table.